Chapter 4, Marriage and the Newlywed Blues. By the time I married my husband, I was four years into my authentic walk with Christ. I had thrived in singleness in Christ. I made lifelong friends, partnered in ministries with others, discipled young women in my community, and had grown by leaps and bounds. During the time, The Lord also did a remarkable work in healing my brokenness and mending my damaged understanding of what it meant to be in a God-pleasing relationship and marriage. By all accounts, including my own, I was ready. As far as I was concerned, everything I had done since coming to Christ only pointed me to one logical conclusion regarding marriage. My statement of belief regarding my future union went something like this. My husband is going to be a real man of God, not a church boy who thinks he is saved because he goes to church once a week, and not some lukewarm Christian who does not even know where Genesis is in the Bible. We are going to pray together, worship together, and have the most amazing sex life. We are saving everything for marriage so that when we do get together, It is going to be effortless and amazing. We are going to do ministry together and show the world how amazing it is to be married in Christ. Everyone who sees our relationship will know that God is real because we would not have this beautiful life without him. I am going to serve him and submit to him without question. And he is going to love me like Christ loves the church. We are going to communicate well because we did the work to learn each other's wants and needs before marriage. My husband will always put our family before his needs. He will not be a selfish man, but a selfless one. He will never disrespect me or make me feel less than the daughter of God I know myself to be. He will honor me and make it effortless for me to do the same in return. We are going to raise our children to be disciples of Christ. He will be the leader of our home, and our children will know the love of a father because of his great example. We are going to preach the gospel together and live Christ for the whole world to see. Everything about our lives will point back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can't wait. I already had a narrative in my head about what my marriage was going to be and what it should entail. I had done the work I needed to do to prepare myself for marriage. I had counseling, mentors, discipleship, and accountability. We were abstaining until our wedding night. Thank you, Jesus, for keeping us. Because being in love, attracted to your partner, and genuinely excited about your future marriage and all its benefits can be a trip in itself. At one point, I wish Jesus would just give me a spouse I was not attracted to then I could wait with no problem. Although my beliefs about what my future marriage should and would look like were genuinely based on my desire to have a godly and God-pleasing marriage and family, a part of it was also based in my desire to redeem myself, as if what Christ did was not enough. I had done relationships poorly for most of my life. Marriage was my chance to, quote, show people that I could do something right. There were people in my life who likely remembered my missteps as a single woman. A part of me wanted to earn their acceptance by marrying the right type of husband and having the right type of marriage. 
I could not garner any favor by being in a marriage that was dysfunctional or struggling in a way that was obvious to onlookers. I wanted a marriage that would make me a good example to others and possibly even give me the stamp of approval I was still looking for due to the residue of rejection that was still lingering from my past. I also thought that marriage to a mature, godly, Christ-following man would save me from having to face any of the challenges that plagued others. I did not want to suffer or struggle or lack or mourn or feel any negative emotion whatsoever when it came to my marriage. I wanted it to be all joy all the time. Little did I know that a steady diet of sugar leads to malnourishment all the same. God was not going to grant me a problem-free marriage just because I wanted one. Without the hard work of having to trust God in a husband who is prone to sin, human error, and personal failings just like me, I deny myself the maturity I need to function as a child of God and as, as a wife to one of his sons. The marriage I had dreamt of was largely based in my church-based idolatry of the institution of marriage. Marriage has been sold to me and countless other women in the church as the be-all and all of our journey as women of God. It was not enough to be in Christ. We had to be married or else we were not complete. And for many years, we all bought into the thinking without a question. I know from a young age that I wanted to be married. More than wanting to be married, I had to be married. Even if I bore all the same fruits of godliness and maturity in Christ as I did as a single woman. If I went year after year without a spouse or a relationship that looked promising. The same people who commanded, who commended my growth in Christ would question what was wrong with me. I cannot blame them because I would have questioned what was wrong with me as well. It never even occurred to me that marriage was not a guarantee for me. It has been an assumption for as long as I have been alive that I will one day get married. Since everyone expected me to be married, I was determined to have the kind of marriage that other people will be proud of. The perfect marriage to the perfect Christian husband would save me from dealing with any of the issues I saw plaguing other marriages and would keep me from suffering due to a husband who was prone to personal failings or who would sin against me. I was trying to choose the kind of marriage that would allow me to bypass the trials and tribulations that Christ himself promised we will face in this world. I did not want to struggle because to me struggling meant that we had did something wrong. Real believers do not have struggles today. And if our marriage was anything less than perfect, wouldn't others assume that we were not really saved? As my soon-to-be husband and I grew in our journey to the aisle, I realized more and more that I was dealing with a flesh and blood human being just like me. My fiance was not the suit and tie, tongue speaking, demon slaying, Ken doll I had filled my head about as a single woman. He was a real man with a genuine relationship with Christ who had his own struggles and was on his own journey into a deeper walk with Christ. Our marriage was not going to be without flaws and without issues, but God was in the midst of our union. The sooner I embraced the reality that my marriage could not save me from trials and tribulations, only Christ provides salvation, the better off we would be. I could not conform my husband to the image in my head, and the Lord himself rebuked me for trying. Either I was going to love him for who he is and who he's growing to be, or I needed to leave him alone. 
I chose to marry him. Bring on the adventures of our lives, bumps and all. Planning our wedding was an experience in itself. By the time we set our wedding date, I was still working as a contractor for the state of North Carolina, representing indigent clients who desired but could not afford an attorney. The hourly rate was between one-third and one-fourth of the going hourly rates for private attorneys. I may do as a single woman living at home with her parents, but as a bride-to-be attempting to save for a wedding, my income was frustratingly insufficient. Things got so bad that summer that I could no longer afford my $200 a month phone bill and ended up losing the phone number I had for 11 years. I was too embarrassed to ask anyone for the money, so I simply did without a phone until I could afford a cheaper option. This incident led to one of my first fights with my then fiance. Although I mentioned my financial challenges with the phone to him, I never asked him for his help. While I was waiting for him to volunteer his assistant, he was waiting for me to ask for help. His silence in the middle of my struggle was deeply hurtful. When it finally became too much to bear, I addressed it with him, voicing my disappointment at his lack of help. He in turn explained that in his own understanding, taking over a financial obligation without being asked is the job of a husband. Doing so as a fiancé seemed inappropriate and an overstep of his boundaries. He was genuinely waiting on me to ask so he could step in and help. I never asked, so he never helped. Unfortunately for us, this pattern was one that would repeat itself for the first several years of our marriage. Despite my financial hardships, I began saving for the wedding, throwing every spare dollar towards our wedding budget. My parents and my in-laws were also a tremendous help, taking major items like food, decor, and entertainment off our plate. Before long, loved ones from all over were volunteering to pay for things such as our cake, our DJ, and rental items. Slowly but surely, our needs were being met. One of the best things my future husband and I did during our planning process was sticking to our guns. A large part of our wedding was being planned to please our parents and close family members. We increased our guest count to accommodate as many as possible. We forego a Thursday night traditional engagement, our preference, in favor of the more expensive Friday option to appease our parents and family members who were traveling from out of state. We did the best we could to make everyone happy. What we did not agree to do, however, was to let our family run the show and run us into debt in the process. Anyone who has strong feelings about any of our wedding plans had to put their money where their mouth was. It was our family who paid for the band, additional venue space, additional tables and chairs, and all the decoration. Everyone who had a strong opinion about our wedding invested in a tangible way. It paid off because we ended up with a debt-free wedding. All vendors were paid in full by the day of our wedding. We owed no one and we had enough money left to start our life together. God's provision for us during our wedding was further evidence that he could be trusted to take care of us even when our means were scant. The day of our wedding, I woke up after barely closing my eyes all night. I was too excited to sleep. I was also much too excited to eat. Although my friends did their best to force feed me. Thank you to Tomi Shovo. 
Most of my bridesmaids and hostesses had spent the night with me at my aunt and uncle's house. We took over their home since they had the space to accommodate the 12 women that made up our bridal party. In the morning, all the bridesmaids convened at the house to finish hair and makeup and meet the limo that would take us to the ceremony. The butterflies in my belly felt eagle-sized. My heart was fluttering the entire morning. As I watched my best friends from childhood, college, and law school in their bridesmaid dresses, preparing to usher me down the aisle to the man of my dreams, my heart was practically bursting with joy. There was so much love and joy in the air. It permeated everything. We sang, we laughed, we screamed in excitement and had the time of our lives. Our ceremony started late. I forgot my bridal jacket at my parents' house. Some of my bridesmaids had to drive behind the limo because of logistics and a host of other things that did not go perfectly as planned, but I did not care. I was completely consumed with the joy of the day. Nothing was going to ruin one of the best days of my life. After we finally said, I do, we headed to the reception hall. More chaos ensued. My wedding venue coordinator was a woman I had met just a year before when we happened on the wedding space that ended up hosting our reception. She had promised me heaven and earth. I paid my deposit on time and we made timely payments on the venue until it was paid in full one month before the wedding. Even when we opted to increase our guest count from 200 to 250, then secured a second banquet hall in the same building to accommodate our new number of guests, 330 people. She assured me that everything was going according to plan. She told me that she would personally decorate and arrange the hall by Wednesday of our wedding week so that it would only need minor touches on Saturday morning. All would be ready to go when we arrived that Saturday at 3 o'clock for the cocktail hour. Imagine my shock when we arrived at a locked venue at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The guests were standing outside. There was no cocktail hour because the vendors could not get inside to set up. Everything in my head wanted to spin out of control. This so-called venue coordinator was trying to ruin our day. Thanks to my amazing dream team of bridesmaids and hostesses, I stayed calm and decided to go with the flow. Whatever chaos would come with the day, the most important part was that I was married to the man I wanted to marry, and we would begin our life together starting that day. Everything else was inconsequential. That attitude allowed me to have an amazing wedding day. Even when my jewelry and makeup bag went missing and I could not change into my reception jewelry as planned. Even when the owner of the venue dropped in unannounced and began attempting to swindle money out of our guests, alleging that we did not pay to have use of a band and our our guest count exceeded the number agreed upon. All fabrications of his imagination and aided largely by the ineptitude of his venue coordinator. In the midst of all of that, I kept my joy. I literally had the time of my life. My new husband and I got on the dance floor around five o'clock that evening and did not sit down again until midnight. We were exhausted, but completely overjoyed. One of the prayers said concerning our wedding was that God would make the guest list. Anyone who was not supposed to be at our wedding but had been inadvertently invited to the wedding. Lord, give them something else to do on that day. Make it impossible for them to attend. 
when random people began telling me they had to miss the wedding and apologizing for their absence prior to our big day. I would assure them that I understood. Meanwhile, my heart smiled because God was answering our prayers. There were dozens of people at our wedding that neither my husband nor I could account for. We have no clue who invited them or how they knew us, but they were there and they added to the joy of the day. The same people we could not have invited in our own wisdom were the ones on the dance floor with us, genuinely rejoicing in our union. The chaos was God-ordained. And because I did not allow the unplanned happenings to steal my joy, we were able to have the wedding of our dreams. Every guest, vendor, and member of the bridal party who showed up for us still has a special place in my heart six years later. I will never forget that God used them to answer my prayers concerning our wedding. After the fantastic, mind-blowing 350 people affair that was our big day, we settled down for a quiet life of being husband and wife. I knew it would be the adventure of my life. What I did not know was that simply being married would require so much of me that I literally had no time for outside commitments. I had no free time. I had expected to continue ministering to others much in much of the same way that I did as a single woman. I thought being married meant that I would have double the impact in ministry. One will chase a thousand, two will chase 10,000, right? Not quite. I went from teaching Sunday school and youth Bible study on a weekly basis, leading praise and worship and singing with the choir, coordinating campus ministry and teaching Bible study, to sitting down and learning how to be a wife. The adjustment was shocking. I felt voiceless. I felt replaced and replaceable as the work of the Lord forged ahead without me. Looking back, I realized now that it was a blessing in disguise. Within a couple of months of being married, we were thrown into the early stages of pregnancy and the rug was yanked from under my feet once again. Being a woman that prides herself on rarely falling sick and being able to power through illness to get work done, I was shocked when the nausea of first trimester took absolutely all the wind out of my sails. This was not an occasional case of feeling less than 100%. I was completely bedridden barely able to drag myself off the couch for simple activities such as bathing or getting dressed for the day. I lost so much weight that my husband grew worried. Thankfully, all was well with our baby. When I came to Christ, I built a solid community of fellow believers, mostly women, that I could pour into as well as learn from. We met for Bible study, sleepovers, lunch, outings at the park, and so much more. When I got married, I thought it would be easy to bring my friends on the journey with me. After all, these were fellow believers who had joyfully celebrated our courtship and engagement with us. I figured that my support system for marriage was already set in stone. What I discovered was that marriage not only changes the new couple, it changes their friends. Most of my friends were people I knew from church, campus ministry, or school. I changed churches. I was no longer actively serving in campus ministry. And as of the time of my wedding, I was six years removed from my last graduation. Once I was not seeing them every day, the bulk of my friends disappeared. It was just my husband and me. The 12 hour shifts when my husband was at work became some of the loneliest times of my marriage. Although my parents were only 20 minutes away, it felt improper to go running to their home anytime loneliness kicked in. I needed to learn a new way to cope as a wife, 
rather than scrambling to mommy and daddy for company. When I found out I was pregnant less than two months after our wedding, there was nobody to call. No friends with whom I could share my immediate joy. During this time, I met a new friend online, Stephanie, a first-generation Liberian-Nigerian born in America who was newly married at the time, just like me. Thankfully, Stephanie was also about to give birth to her and her husband's first child, and she was able to help me navigate the tumultuous water of what to expect while I was expecting. She became my only friend and trusted ally, although we lived almost 14 hours apart. I did not confide in the young women from my previous church because our almost six-year sisterhood had come to a shocking and heartbreaking end. Long story, stay tuned. I could not confide in the older women around me because technically nobody outside of my family was supposed to know I was expecting. Nigerians value secrecy in early pregnancy. Stephanie was a godsend. Without her, I would not have had a friend in my new journey as a wife and a soon-to-be mother. As a single woman, I cultivated what I believe to be a strong village of sisters who would pray for me, encourage me, and walk me into my new season as a wife. I knew our friendships would be different once I was married, but I did not know our bond would disappear. The same girls who had spent endless hours at my house cooking and laughing with me were nowhere to be found. Even if all I wanted was a 10-minute conversation to check in with a friend, I was hard-pressed to find anyone from my previous circle who would take my call or call me in return. Even my bridesmaids all went back to their own lives after the wedding. The married ones went to take care of their own homes, and the single ones had school, work, and ministry obligations to keep them busy. I felt forgotten and alone. There is no pain like being newly married, yet completely lonely. Admitting that I was deeply lonely as a newlywed seemed like asking for trouble. People were bound to judge me or think less of my husband and my marriage. It has taken me years to understand how I could go from a happy single woman with a thriving social life to married and woefully lacking in friends and genuine connections. We explored the dynamics between single women and married women in Wives in Waiting, a global women's ministry, and the conversations there have been eye-opening. As someone who was wounded by the disappearance of my single friends after my marriage, I wanted to understand why. My cousin gave me some insight. In her words, when her friends get married, she would leave them alone to be married. The women she has spent all her waking hours with, traveling, eating out, chatting on the phone, being each other's plus ones to weddings, going to brunches, literally everything under the sun, were always left to their own devices after the wedding. She did not intrude on their new lives as wives. She respected their unions and gave them ample space to navigate their new realities as someone's wife. What she saw as showing the utmost respect for her friend's new marital status felt like abandonment when I had experienced it from my own group of friends. The women I cherished most were the ones who had seen me through my many transitions, from single to single and dating, to single and engaged, to married and now married with children. Anyone who endures and survives those transitions with me was endeared to me forever. These are the women who help me remember who I am when the weight of marriage and motherhood sucks me of all my identity outside of my roles in the home. They remind me to dream. These women help me to remember how far I have to come 
in my journey and how far the Lord can still take me. My husband may be my best friend, but I always need my sisters. Even in the midst of what I consider deep friendships, the thief of comparison reared its head. Immediately after our wedding, all of our friends who were married before us began buying homes. My brother, whose wedding was two years before ours, bought his second home with his wife, just in time for them to welcome their first child. Homeownership was the new trend, and parents and loved ones encouraged and pushed for us to stop renting and buy our own home. I resented the push. Although we were both 30 years old, my husband and I were still finding our feet as adults. He had graduated nursing school just three years before our wedding, and I was still looking for the big break in my career. My brother's new house felt like a condemnation of my own lot in life. My husband and I were renters, and homeownership would not be foreseeable for us for a long time. We had no established credit and an insurmountable amount of debt. Anyone asking us to purchase a home was simply throwing salt on an open wound. Initially, I was thrilled with our spacious apartment home. The rooms were large and the neighborhood was beautiful. I could walk to a local grocer or take a five-minute stroll and have my options of various restaurants and attractions. I loved hosting guests in our home, but after much chatter about why we should be homeowners already, I worried that others were looking down on us in our two-bedroom apartment. We did not have the two-story house with a two-car garage that everyone else was sporting. Having friends over, especially if they were homeowners, began to induce some mild anxiety. I had allowed outsiders to rob me of the peace, which God himself had graciously granted me about our home. After a candid look at our financial goals, my husband and I realized that owning a home was not a priority for us for a few more years. We were newly married and pregnant. We had plenty of room in our two-bedroom apartment. Our well-wishers would learn, would learn to rejoice with us in our wonderful, spacious, joyful two-bedroom apartment. It was our home. When we bought our home four years later, it was a testimony of God's perfect timing. This would not be the first time that comparison robbed me of peace. From the first day of our marriage, I wanted my husband to be the senior pastor in charge of our home. All the books I read and all the testimonies from other Christian couples had my expectations high regarding the spiritual guidance and insight my husband was to provide for me. He was the spiritual leader of our home. Marriage was supposed to make me a better believer. My husband should take the lead and make that happen. My husband was on his own journey of deepening his walk with Christ. He was beginning to get comfortable with things such as praying out loud. Family devotions and studying the Bible on his own were brand new to him. My expectations and my husband's ability to meet them were at odds. And it started putting all types of voices of doubts in my head. What if I ended up like my mom, who had been attending church for years without my father? They are both now happily plugged in and growing in their respective churches. But at the time, my father did not go at all. What if I had to be the one to teach our children what it meant to live for the Lord while my husband coasted along comfortably, paying us no mind? The panic in my mind brought out the nag in me as I prodded my husband with complaint after complaint 
about his lack of enthusiasm for our spiritual state. He was patient with me. We did couples devotion and held hands in prayer at my request. Eventually, I prayed about my concerns and I was immediately convicted. It seemed every time I would come to the Lord about my husband, the Holy Spirit would retort, let's talk about you though. It turns out that my constant push for a spiritual connection through my husband was not without mixed motives. What drove my actions was fear for my own future rather than love for my husband. I did not need to police the work of God in my husband's life. My husband had the Holy Spirit just like I did. And even if his worship of God did not resemble mine, it was no less authentic. In short, God told me to mind my business. I committed to praying for my husband and doing my best to feed my own relationship with God so that I had something to pour out for my family rather than blaming my emptiness on my husband. It was not his job to make sure I was growing in Christ. It was mine. I was judging my husband's relationship with God based on my own expression of faith. As a woman who found Christ at a pivotal pivotal point in my life, my worship of God is very expressive and often emotional. I sing and pray in the car. I do my devotional or prayer in the middle of the night. I often find myself on my knees during corporate worship at church. God's presence is very God's presence is very real and tangible to me. Getting married at the beginning of the social media boom meant that I was being bombarded with well-meaning messages of what godly men and women were supposed to do and look like. Because I did not see my husband kneeling down in worship like me or pouring over the Bible where I could watch him, I was ready to brand him a nominal Christian. The hundreds of images of husbands kneeling at the altar or in their personal study time had me completely brainwashed. I had the playbook of what a godly couple is supposed to look like and be. Anything in our lives that did not resemble the image in my head was either a compromise on our part or a failure on mine. Thank God for the chastisement of the Holy Spirit. There is an ever-present part of me that wants to make my husband into my own image rather than allowing him to grow in the image of Christ. I either want him to function like me or fit the image of the husband I had in my head. The more other husbands mirrored the image in my head, the harder a time I had with accepting my own husband for who he was. Comparison was killing me. One of the running themes of my marriage is the Lord's continuous exposition about the danger of comparison. Measuring my portion in marriage against the portions of any other woman has always led to discontent and bitterness about the hand I was dealt. Using the happiness of outsiders to gauge my own has led to destructive outcomes that poisoned my heart and stole joy from my marriage. As I grow in marriage, I have come to realize that when it comes to my marriage, my husband's personality, our finances, my own abilities as a wife and mother, my looks, or any other thing I can think of, I have all that I need in order to serve the Lord in the life he has given me. Rather than counting anyone else's pockets, my time would have been better spent honing my God-given acumen for budgeting and stretching a dollar by finding the best deals. Rather than looking wistfully on women who were always perfectly dressed and made up, 
I should have been investing in the gentle and quiet spirit that pleased God, while also taking the appropriate amount of time to care for myself, body, spirit, and soul, so that I can find peace and joy in what I carry and what I have to offer. Nothing about my purpose, in life or in marriage, is tied to me looking like another woman. As much as I admire their physical flawlessness, looking like them would not grant me their lives or equip me any better to live my own. I need to embrace the Lord who says that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God is wise and sovereign in his creation of me. Even my outward appearance was not an accident. He deserved my worship, and that worship must include being thankful for how he has created and shaped me. God's design of me, both physically and internally, equips me for the life I live, especially in my role as a wife. God knew what my husband likes, and he made sure I fit the mold for the man whose life is so intricately, intricately tied to mine. By the same token, I am grateful that God knew what I liked and put the love and integrity I cherish about my husband into a body I absolutely adore. My husband is my very definition of fine. Tall, dark, handsome, and built like a soccer player. I fully embrace the grace of God in my marriage that allows my husband to only have eyes for me and vice versa. I bask daily in the love that fills my heart when my husband calls me beautiful, even when my hair is under a bonnet and my waistline tells the story of two healthy pregnancies. To be perfectly honest, I have all that I need. I never saw lack until I stopped looking at God and started to look at my own means. The Lord who has promised to provide all that I need, not necessarily all I want, is worthy to be trusted. If I do not have it, but I need it, then I can rest in God's timing. He has promised not to withhold good things from me. If it seems good to me, but God says no, then I can rest in the knowledge that he knows what is best and he refuses to give me anything that looks good, but is not good for me. My marriage has blessed me in surprising ways. I was very naive when our marriage first began. I expected the pictured perfection posted on my favorite wedding websites. In premarital counseling, our counselors warned us that tough times and disagreements would come, and they gave us the tools to work through our challenges. I was listening and taking notes during those sessions, but a part of me was convinced that my husband and I loved each other way too much to encounter any of the struggles our counselors described. <laughs> when I found myself pregnant within the first two months of our marriage, we had a whole different set of challenges that we were not prepared to face as newlyweds. I went from a blushing bride who prided herself on looking attractive for her husband, preparing all his meals and being available for whatever adventure he wanted to embark on, to barely getting off the couch all day. I barely had the strength to shower and get dressed each day. All my days began to run together as I no longer left the house unless it was unavoidable. And even on those rare occasions, I hated being far away from my own bedroom and the comfort of my couch or bed. Cooking was out of the question 
because the smell of everything nauseated me. I was in continuous pain and near dehydration because of my unrelenting sickness. I lost weight instead of gaining it during early pregnancy and was petrified that my inability to get it together would somehow jeopardize the baby. Nobody told me that pregnancy would be like this and I immediately resented the fabulous baby bumps that were flaunted everywhere I looked. These women had lied. They painted pregnancy as a time of growing and glowing. I must have been doing it wrong. The Lord used my first pregnancy to show me exactly who I had married. And it is a lesson I will never forget. Physically and emotionally, I was changing right before my husband's eyes. Gone was the pretty and carefree girl who was ever ready to be his companion to every outing and adventure. I did not wear pregnancy well during the first five months. I had no energy and no motivation to put any effort into how I looked. I could barely leave the couch, talk less of venturing out of the house to do anything social or fun. My husband temporarily lost his companion and favorite partner in adventure because all I could really do each day was attempt to shower and keep the nausea at a minimum by staying perfectly still. Would my husband be revolted by the constant nausea? Would he leave me to bear the roller coaster of pregnancy symptoms alone while he chased more interesting pursuits? Or worse still, would he quietly resent having to take on 100% of the responsibilities of our home as I laid about helpless? In contradiction to my fears, my husband was a faithful and compassionate companion. He, t- he took on many repulsive tasks to make sure I was comfortable and that I was not adding any stress to my already overwhelmed body. He called around to doctor's offices until he found me the best care to alleviate my nausea and round-the-clock sickness. I am still convinced till today that the prayers of our loved ones before the wedding were still working for us in our marriage and upholding us even now. There are so many testimonies of God's timely provision in our marriage. This has been Chapter 4, Session 1 of Memoirs of a Nigerian in Christ. Join us next time where we pick up with Part 2 of Chapter 4. Take care. Have a great one.